0: Hey, y'all, here is your bonus episode. So I know I usually post on Wednesday, but I haven't been posting interviews this summer because we're between season one and season two, but I could not help myself. Today's interview is with Shonda Santana, and Shonda talks all about freedom, not your typical July 4th freedom, but freedom from a situation or a circumstance that you find yourself in going through in your life, and you're like, I don't want to be here. I don't want my life to keep going like this. And her grit and resilience will amaze you. Her life reads like a movie. You can't believe that this really happened to somebody. Shonda lives in my town where I live, and um, I'm blown away by her story. So I hope you will sit back, listen. I know it's an hour long, but it's worth it. If you have kids listening, beware that a lot of what she goes through is hard. She doesn't go into too many details about it, but there may be certain words thrown out that your kids may have questions about. All right. Welcome everybody. Today we have Shonda Santana. Welcome Shonda.
1: Glad
0: to be here. So Shonda started um, something called Divas Who Win Freedom Center, right Shonda? That's right. right. And so this organization is a nonprofit and it promotes wellness for women who are affected by substance use disorder or sexual exploitation and Shonda herself has been a victim of sex trauma, domestic violence, divorce, addiction, and she was the is the parent to a child who was trafficked, which is just mind-blowing to me. We're in the same town and anyway, I can't I can't wait to hear about your journey and I don't see how somebody survives that, but you're not only surviving, you've used this experience to impact the lives of women all over the place.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're, that's,
0: that's our aim. That's our goal for sure. So walk me back through when you were maybe a teenager. So in Mm -hmm. your early teen years, what was life like for you back then?
1: Um, So going back just a bit further, my childhood, um, I grew up in Asheville, North Carolina and uh, my mom was married a few times, but my grandparents did a lot of the rearing. Yeah. And so I was um, just never been a really social person. I've loved books. I probably I had read my first book at age four. I just, wow. I loved fantasy and, and with, sort of withdrawn because I didn't feel so comfortable face-to-face you know had a lot of social anxiety that really wasn't prompted by anything but um and I was a a competitive person I loved but I liked sports that relied on me
0: not (laughs)
1: on teams you know (laughs) so I really um I remember being in gymnastics and competing to the junior Olympics there and the same thing with swimming and um, creative dance and pageants. And so my mom did a really great job uh, exposing me culturally to different things. And so, you know, I was just your typical, uh, just small town girl, you know, straight A student uh, involved in leadership things at school, treasurer, vice president, all Mm -hmm. that. And then you know, my life just took a different turn at about the age 12. I experienced some childhood trauma from a family member mm-hmm. um, that really stretched from age 12 to 14. Wow. And, and, that, and life changed drastically yeah. uh, for me at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, that was when, not unbeknownst to me, but probably clinical depression set right. in, uh, PTSD, PTSD. And I was no longer the straight A uh, student, you know, I was uh, became drawn to danger, drawn to yeah. high risk situations. Um, but I was still smart and so I could lay out a school for uh, I had this little hiding spot in one of the places my mom and I and now we moved to Atlanta. We moved from a little small town to Atlanta mm. in the post trauma that my mom didn't even know existed. Oh my gosh. so that that was uh so so i withdrew at that point i only i had a really toxic circle um i kind of looked for men with power and at that time you know uh crack cocaine in the black neighborhoods became a huge deal in the 80s and i i just naturally due to my trauma gravitated towards these men with power and God, that was,
0: Shonda, how I can't imagine a 12 year old involved in all this stuff, the junior Olympics yeah. and pageants. And, and then yeah. it just, it forever changed the course mm-hmm. of your life. And um, yep. yeah, I mean, I, you can't not be changed after that happens.
1: Right, right. It did. And um, yeah, you know, and, you know, hiding secrets and trying to navigate life uh, just I didn't have the skill set. I didn't have the tools. I didn't have the conversations yeah. around these type of things, and so um, I began to kind of. I can look back now and know that this was what I was doing, but I began to look for a place that I could uh, sort of leverage the gifts and talents that I still possessed. Yeah, and for me, that became just hanging on the arm of powerful men who were Mm -hmm. involved in crime, you know, but that, and actually to try to be a savior, I can't think of a drug dealer that I dated during that time that I did not try to transform out of that life. Like I just made it my mantra, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. to, to try and change that. So that eventually, um, I dropped out of high school just maybe six months before graduation and went and got my GED. And that was when um, I entered uh, the sex trade as a dancer at first and then dancing led to other things. And so, you know, Mm -hmm. if you recall as a child I was into creative dance. I loved um, color and uh, fashion and expression. Mm -hmm. And so I just sort of parked those things and reinvented myself in another space that uh, was not familiar to my family line or any, you know, I was Mm -hmm. the long ranger in all of that. My sister was in the military, you know, and here I was uh, attracted to these things, but I was so desperate for control mm-hmm. over my what felt like control you yeah. know I wanted to have power and control I had run my course of being the girl of anybody I wanted to have full uh, other traumas happened you know mm-hmm. in, at age 15 16 and I, I was just done with it I thought yeah nobody's gonna um I've got to protect myself I've have to look out for myself and make a way Mm -hmm. And that didn't mean I didn't have a supportive mom, I did, but she, this was so foreign to her, all
0: this, you know? Yeah. That makes sense that you sort of um, chose, you decided to choose this persona so that you could have control over it because it was, life was sort of happening to you, it sounds like. That's right. It was. It was. And I can see how maybe the choice to become a dancer slowly led into these other avenues. Mm -hmm. And and you you made a point um, in another podcast that sex trafficking and sex trade are two different things. Will you share with us the difference?
1: Absolutely. So uh, for me, I remember uh, when I started working at this particular club, some people from my high school, it was right before I dropped out, there was a local drug dealer that they were like, well, such and such as girls work at that same club do you want him to look out for you? Okay. And, you know, just as articulately as I speak right now, I spoke then and I asked them to describe what look out for me meant. Exactly. And really it meant pimp. Oh. And I told, they were like, you had, uh, you know, they call me Santana. Santana, you don't have any business over in this certain part of town, Atlanta. And I said, I think I'll be just, cause no one knew what I'd already endured, you know, and even okay. though I didn't wear it on the outside, I, there was not in my mind, nothing short of death would be worse than what I'd experienced. So I was here for it, you know, yeah. and I, I told them, no, I, I will manage myself, which I did. And so trade for me was, I always had power and control over the services that I performed and mm-hmm. the money that came in from it. Yeah. Whereas trafficking means there is that third party involved that gets to manipulate and coerce, control and the money in, in part or in whole, most mm-hmm. of the time in whole goes to that that third party.
0: Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. When you think back to the person you were then, did the substance abuse come later or how do you remember that that yourself back then? So
1: I remember um, experimenting with mostly alcohol and marijuana at right after my trauma.
0: Well, yeah. Um,
1: And it was just part of like the neighborhoods and the people that I would hang out with. But I always had a fear of like hard drugs, you know, Mm -hmm. cocaine or crack or heroin. I had a fear of that. And plus, I watched these drug dealing boyfriends of mine. I watched how a woman's life or a girl's life would just in six months plummet you know Mm -hmm. and that was why I was always trying to convince them to get out of this line of work Um, so it slowly started at a really young age but it was never something that I just did alone or for my own leisure so it didn't take a hold of me is the way that I describe it and then when I became involved in the sex trade Uh, it was the only way that I could work. You know, I had to be under the influence to work. Yeah. And then there were lots of, yeah, lots of drugs in the dressing room. You know, this was just the culture Mm -hmm. lines of cocaine. This is just what the women did. I wasn't alone in needing a certain substance to function and perform. And, um, but still it didn't quite take a hold. If I wasn't at work, you would not find me in a drunken stupor or anything like that. But you know, it, uh, the disease sort of flipped the table on me around the Mm. age of 27. Um, it just slowly, I was in a really toxic marriage that I would separate from my ex-husband on a really regular basis. Yeah. And, um, when that would happen, I would find myself relying on any type of sleep aid, you know, to just stay in the bed, stay in the bed. Um, and then, you know, that went on for about 10 years i knew about two years in i have a problem but i was what you call i don't even like to use the word addict but i was like a squirrel addict i I could store it up for months and then you know use and then go six months without anything but after that cycle for about 10 years it just overtook me you know i reached a point of sort of life or death just in my mental health and the shame Of this, uh, it was no longer recreational. So at 26, I came away from the sex trade. Okay. Um, It was just a beautiful spiritual conversion. Uh, I never looked back at it. Never had a thought about it. Came away from all street drugs, alcohol. Still haven't had a sip of alcohol in 24 years. Wow!
0: Congratulations.
1: Thank you. Um, It was really the PTSD, my unmanaged, you know, childhood trauma depression that I didn't know was depression right and so having six babies they load you up with opioids you know back then I don't know if the rules are stricter now um and I just found myself dependent you yeah. know on them but it was all at home you know my life of being wild and into the street all at 26 that stopped and okay. so I was just really full of shame as a mother yeah with six children with this issue that I could manage most of the time but the times that I couldn't were problematic
0: yeah and I just didn't know where to turn you know I can't imagine during that 10 years well during the time before you had your conversion were there periods mm-hmm. where you like looked at yourself in the mirror or where you were, maybe you were around your mom where you kind of came to and snapped out of it and thought what the heck am I doing or were oh, you absolutely. sort of, okay. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, it, was, were you in it a was
1: always a seesaw, you know, I always desired something more. You know, I had my first, I was pregnant with my first son when I was 19 and, um, I ended up having five boys and one girl, but wow, my two sons that I had at a really young age before I was married, I, I just, it, it was such this, um, ambivalence between my i lived a dual lifestyle that's what it sounds
0: like Mm -hmm.
1: I worked in Buckhead at a thriving restaurant made great great money with all these college students but then uh, a couple of days a week I'd be in my own underground activities doing other things so it was always a struggle I would promise my boys at age two and three over and over again that mama Was I I didn't want to pass that life to them. I really didn't, but I didn't have a high school diploma. I'm filled up with all this trauma, which childhood trauma was not even a sentence that crossed my ears at the age of 20, you know? Uh, So there was always this duality that that I struggled. I could never comfortably just settle into it. There was always something Mm -hmm. greater in me beckoning me to come away and come with you know yeah
0: what and I when I hear stories like this a lot of times people have physical manifestations of illness or disease from living such a torn life Mm -hmm. did you Mm -hmm. have physical symptoms or just just
1: the mental health side of things Just, just just living with such deep rooted depression and PTSD that, mm-hmm. um, I tried counseling, you know, there were some suicide attempts in my mm-hmm. teenage years and some mental hospital stays. And I, I just, uh, resisted counseling. I thought I didn't agree with some of the models in which mm-hmm. I always felt older than myself, you know, so they're talking right. you know, to a 14 or 15 year old trying to figure out what's going on. And I just think it was, I've had this sort of God-given wisdom from a young yeah. age, and I remember being asked what color was the house, that certain things happen, and I remember challenging that psychologist, like, with a chair across the room, like, yeah. <laughs> like, do not ask me that, like, do right. me, you know, how about you teach me how do not have night terrors and exactly. how certain smells won't set me off. Like, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter. But knowing what I know now at 50, I understand that was all their process of trying to build trust. And co- so I was against mm-hmm. counseling, you know, because I had some, but I'll tell you, I the only time I ever thrived was in group counseling. And why? Because I wanted to help the people, ah. you know, so at 18, when I land, I remember finally finding a, a counseling group yeah. That I would make time in the midst of destructive behavior, I, I sort of stuck with that. But that I just, is, I could,
0: yeah, that's yeah. funny because you know when we're looking for our strengths or what our God given gifts are, and they'll say, "When do you remember really thriving?" And mm-hmm. for you, it was this group group therapy. I did, yeah, group therapy, and
1: you know, uh, it, it's not a glamorous thing to say, but. I recruited girls into my work. Now, never to monetize off of them. But in my mind, I wanted to help them stay safe. Yeah. I wanted to show them the correct model. I mm-hmm. wanted them to not get pimped out, you know? So it, it was in me then, you know, 19 yeah. and 20, I, uh, I thought I had my hand on something that yeah. could be okay, even though I struggled internally and I wanted women to be safe. And there was a way in which we were going to do this to take back our power and our, our control. So the signs were really already written on the wall in the midst of my self-destructive mm-hmm. uh, couple of decades that I found myself in.
0: It's like those seeds were planted and the gifts mm-hmm. would grow later. Yeah, absolutely. Well, when you were a mom and you had some kids at home, how mm-hmm. what was life like when you were around parents that you felt like were, you know, just couldn't understand you like what was that like um so being a a woman of color
1: and six children and we lived mostly um at or below the poverty Mm -hmm. line um I didn't have a skill set at that time at 26 27 28 Uh, my ex-husband was in hospitality um he did okay but not for six children you know yeah So I always felt uh, alone, like shame, just shame feels so much of my life, like ashamed when we pulled up to church in this broken down van Mm -hmm. and all these children toppled out. I just felt like the world was judging me, that everyone uh, probably felt like I should have stopped having children. (laughs) And. Um, I just couldn't relate, you know, I was always um, really resourceful out of need and maybe now intuitively uh, resourceful and not not afraid that to take certain risks and ask for what I needed. And that Mm -hmm. was really built in me in the sex trait, you know what I mean? My, because yeah. if I was going to monetize that, that it had to be done a certain way. So I kept my children in circles outside of us. Mm-hmm. You know, I was the scholarship essay writing queen. You know, I wow. would find a certain resource. I always, it brought me pleasure to search for things because I had to, you know, yeah. I had to be resourceful for us to eat most yeah. of the time. And so my children were exposed outside of our zip code, if I can say that. Yeah. So um, how did I feel around other moms just like I didn't fit, I didn't belong. They couldn't yeah. understand um, because I presented well, you know, even in the midst of struggling with the disease of addiction. if I showed up, you know, I, I had been invited to be the PTA uh, president and wow. all these different things and no one knew, you know, the, the secret struggle. I, they just knew, oh, I'm such and such as mom. And I have three Mm -hmm. kids at the elementary school and three of them at the middle school. Yeah. And so, um, you know, it came with kind of the good and the evil of it, you know, Mm -hmm. that cloak of deception, but then that chameleon effect that allowed me to access things that other people Who suffered like I did and looked like I did weren't able to, you know.
0: And I when I heard you on this other podcast, um, the the entrepreneur adventure with Chad Brown and Josh Milton, they were talking about you applying for a job at the Coca-Cola building. (laughs) And they said your resume was hands down the best one they've ever received. And mm. just how it was color coded and had your picture <laughs> on it, and and you said I got that done on Fiverr, like you were right. resourceful. And uh-huh. anyway, they hired you, right? They did. They <laughs> did.
1: Yeah, that just goes back to to the resources. Really, I think uh, surviving childhood trauma before that was a thing. I just um, I remember reading books, like riding the Marta bus and train. Mm-hmm. My mom moved around a lot, so I would lose friendships. And and when I became of age, like 13 or 14, I was just always super duper independent. Like yeah. at, at five, I remember bringing a girl home from school from Ethiopia because Spanish was my first language. My dad is Dominican.
0: Oh.
1: Um, and this girl had this most beautiful, gorgeous, shoulder length, thick, thick hair. And she had a case of lice. And all the children at school, oh. uh, they buddied me with her because we both spoke Spanish and in the first grade. And I just remember being so angry that these kids were picking on my friend. Yeah. And I don't remember how it happened, but, you know, small town living 40 something years ago, I brought her to my grandmother's house. And I remember standing in that chair and had my <laughs> granddaddy go to Woolworths to buy the stuff for her hair. And I didn't have a fear of a lice bug or nothing. And I washed her hair and (laughs) braided up her hair and took her, you know, and dared anybody to say a word, you know, to her. Uh But like that sort of, leadership and I'm um, for the underdog was yes. just even in me then and then I was just always curious. I had this curiosity mm-hmm. cuz I lived in libraries and museums. Like that was what I would do on the weekend. I walked downtown by myself because you could back then, you yeah. know, no one would bother me and I always just sort of lived in this p- space of wonder and yeah. imagination. So, uh fast forward to the resume and Fiverr and all that I was just, when, when I was assaulted as a young person, something in me always wanted relief from that. Not only relief, but I wanted to help the next girl. And Mm -hmm. so I had to really stretch and research and search for what I needed at the time to help me and then started stacking children into the picture yeah, and uh, wanting a better life for them. I never wanted to settle for what I was giving them. I just dreamed of a day that they could have more. And I knew that I'd have to expose them to that. And I knew exposure went beyond my zip code, you know?
0: Mm -hmm. And so when did the seed get planted for divas who win? Like, what were you, when did that idea come?
1: Um, so shortly after rehab, so I checked myself into rehab when I was 36 years old um, and just that was, uh, and I say to everyone, I feel like everybody's going to rehab for even just 30 days they do. to just stop the pace of life, work a 12 step program or get the, that, is the, true. The, you know, it's just, it was so one, like other people have terrible recall of rehab is the best six months of my entire <laughs> life. Um, because I, I needed to slop and st- slow down and see about me. I needed to go mm-hmm. back and see about that 12 year old girl, you know. Yeah, that's so true. And um, So I started dreaming about Diva shortly after. So I have I'm almost 15 years in sobriety now. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like I had gone to Disney World. like being with <laughs> these women, yeah. there are about 25 women in that program. Um, And we just loved each other and we shared our secrets and we didn't do drugs and alcohol. And we weren't, uh, you know, sidetracked with intimate relationships. You know, it was just caring for our souls. And I just had this something in me that thought, and I worked there for 10 years, but I just thought, what about in regular community? Because I kept Uh seeing in my 10 years of working at my rehab. I would just see girls come through there two times, three times, four times. Mm-hmm. And I would trace back, well, what went wrong? It was like the women who lived out there and restarted their law and had the means to do so, they thrived and yeah. didn't come back through. But women who went back to their communities just didn't have the resources yes. or the opportunities. So- You saw a I need. Yeah, I, I, I just felt like, I, you know, I've been in Athens for 17 years now. So for me, it's the where my feet have been the longest in my mm-hmm. lifetime. Um, and I just couldn't shake it loose, even though, you know, I'm a spiritual person that, you know, people call me pastor and all the girls here call me mama. And just <laughs> aside from all of that, I thought I just want to be in community. Yeah, you know, I want women. I would not have stayed stuck in my disease and not being healed of my trauma if there were women somewhere talking about, you know, I felt like I couldn't do it at church because uh, at church, I led my first prayer meeting when I was six years old. My mother was on the choir and we had candlelight prayer service, and my mom would sit me and my siblings on the back row. And I just, for whatever reason, decided one day, I got something I want to pray about. I was <laughs> six, and I walked down that aisle at that women's meeting that night and grabbed that microphone and prayed. Oh. and I mean that's just something God did in me. But I knew I, I had a question: What happens after the prayer? Uh-huh. That was just something that always sat so heavy on my heart from rehab, and and so. I say that to say in church after my conversion I wasn't talking about what really still had had me sick because who else was talking about it you know what I mean yeah. I, I re- my recall was that churches helped people through certain emergencies but I lived with my emergency my emergency was domestic violence my emergency was uh childhood sexual trauma and my mm-hmm. emergency was my disease of addiction where did I where could I really place that, you know? And mm-hmm. so that was what how Divas came about. I just dreamed of a day that women could come to a beautiful place, and that it would be the thing for us to talk about secrets. Like the expectation would be that we would really all walk around with this sign around our neck saying, "I recovered from this, from this, from this, from this," mm-hmm. and all a woman had to do is read the sign and and insert herself wherever she's ready. Yeah. And so although we don't literally walk around with those signs, but in our conversations and the culture we've built here, mm-hmm. over time, women begin to share those things. So I just, uh, preacher or not, I wanted to build something in my community that didn't have the crucifix, you know, mm-hmm. uh, where women who have religious trauma could feel comfortable coming yeah. to And um, that's how the seeds were planted from divas was really from my, my rehab. I wanted to take away anonymity and take away the secret of recovery and just make it as bold and blingy as possible so that women could Mm -hmm. come and get healed, you know?
0: Yeah. And you had started the 501c3 uh, paperwork and then Mm -hmm. all this stuff happened with your daughter, right?
1: Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So One thing I wasn't really prepared to do
1: in community was talk about leaving the sex trade 24 years ago. Yeah. I I could talk about sexual trauma, um, domestic violence, power. I was ready to discuss all those things. But once again, Mm. where was the woman talking about her little black book? You know, there Mm. there wasn't a space for that. You're right. There's there's projects, you know, there's thriving organizations around domestic violence. There's rehabs and crisis units, even for the addiction piece. Um, but there was no one talking about that. So when I began to build divas, I I had no plan to put that out front for community. It was something eventually that some women would be able to engage and relate around that issue. So when my daughter uh, was trafficked, uh, my card of grace and buckets of mercy was the fact that I've been doing this work for 10 years. Yeah. And I t- sat knee to knee, women, I, you know, sat with over a thousand women, um, knee to knee, breast to breast, and heard their stories. And over 30% of them had come out of some form of, of trade or trafficking. Wow. Um, so it really was my, so that was really, And the grace of God, how I was able to get my daughter out of this. It was a really bad summer for her, not a seven-year stint, you know. Yeah, this was like
0: 30 days of of mm -hmm. hell. Terror, yeah,
1: yeah, it really was. You know, my daughter graduated that May and was waiting to go off to Georgia Gwinnett College. Mm-hmm. And someone um, really from her high school kind of did some work in the recruiting and then social media platforms or leverage that lured her and her best friend into Atlanta. And so it was like a six week period of time.
0: Wow. Of and she, where, and yeah. from what I've heard, she didn't think she was going to be a... In anything to do with sex, she thought she was going to make some extra money before college by posing, taking taking pictures. pictures, Yeah, you know, yeah, and that's what she thought.
1: You know, to naive. uh, She'll she'll say to this day, if she wasn't a little country girl raised up in Athens, she would have been hip to the language and would have known. And 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 there's a bit of truth, you know, to that. She would have been maybe a bit more prepared um but no she had no no idea so when she survived it and then this this long four-year process of FBI investigations and you know I, I moved my door out of state for a while and the FBI traveled wow. to that state on multiple occasions to keep collecting her story and we worked through it and worked through it and worked through it and um April 1st of this year her traffickers were sentenced to 20 years federal time um, Ooh, which is the maximum mandation. But the thing that I knew when my daughter, uh, when we rescued her and immediately moved her out of state with a family member, and when she kept sticking through the process of all this follow-up and mm-hmm. I mean, just so much follow-up, I thought, man, there's no, because I what I knew was had I not, now, you know, the Bible says that uh, God's ways are higher than our ways, His thoughts so much higher than our thoughts. So, um, God still had a plan. But outside of that, just like in the natural sense, I knew that it was my recovery history that helped me insert myself into this trafficking situation because I did have access to a a trafficking agency because I'd done work, you know, mm-hmm. over the years through my work. So I had such a burden on my heart. I thought, well, what would Hope do if her daughter on her cheerleading squad, you know, that mm-hmm. that she is on. I just had such a burden for community. I knew that we were unique in having these other relationships. And even with those relationships, I still felt so lost it was urgent. It was emergent and it needed to be settled immediately. And so that was when I said, I'm going to add this part to the mission because so many women that struggle with substance use disorders also had a history, um, whether it was tied to their addiction or not had a history in this part of things but there weren't agencies that I knew of where you could openly talk about it so mm-hmm. I went back in and redid um the bylaws and restructured who divas would serve and that's when we added on um prostitution and sex trafficking survivors as part mm-hmm. of the mission
0: So you were, you were in the process of applying for this nonprofit status. Mm -hmm. This all happened Mm -hmm. with your daughter and you were like, God, it's a sign. I need to add this part of it. This sex trafficking, prostitution, all this to my Mm -hmm. mission statement.
1: I did. And um, because I could foresee the challenges that my daughter, the things that would lie ahead of her after this experience Um, beyond substance use. And um, I just wanted, I did, I wanted a place for these ladies stories. Like I didn't want people to experience. I had compartmentalized myself for so long in so many ways throughout my life. Yeah. And I was now ready to stop compartmentalizing myself. You know, um, I wanted this to be my life work. Yeah. And so I said, you know, we we have to tell the whole story, like, yeah. and not not everyone that comes to these doors has to tell the whole story, but I have to tell mm-hmm. the whole story, you know. And my daughter's on her own journey; she will. Her story is still unfolding, but yeah, uh, I just, I just, I was just weary from all the compartments, you know. And Shonda, really did you weird. feel
0: a sense of like freedom or lightness when you finally embraced that part of your story?
1: Absolutely. Because, you know, I say in this building all the time, although we are funded for the addiction part of what we do and we lean into community to help us boost the other part, I still identify so much more with the the sex trade struggle Mm -hmm. because for me, I'm 14 years and eight months into recovery and i have not had to restart my start date. Mm-hmm. but I restarted my exit from sex trade more times than I can count. Like that, that was a 10 year from the moment I got in it. I wanted out of it. Yeah. And it took really from about the age of 18 to 26. So eight years of in and out, in and out, in and out. I didn't have the tools in my hand to make a living. And and then I had the, just the healing that needed to happen to help free me up there. Mm-hmm. So I so much more identify with that part, but that part came with double shame and double stigma, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So yes, it was liberating for me to just know that I can walk into my building every day and depending on who comes in the building, who needs to hear what part of the story, Mm -hmm. it's part of it. You know, it's on the wall, you know, there's a three by three foot mission statement on the wall. Yeah. And, um, I
0: get, I get to share all of it today, you know, that's powerful. And I also wanted to talk about your, when your daughter was missing and you suspected Mm -hmm. that she was involved in sex trafficking Mm -hmm. and you started investigating, looking on Instagram, trying to figure this out. There was also a, a a time clock. So she was about to turn 18 Mm -hmm. and tell Mm -hmm. us about why that was so important. Yeah, because of the
1: work that I've done in this space a bit, I knew that the law would consider her no longer a victim, that she would be, she would just be an adult prostitute at the age of 18. Yeah, she um, would get she charged, and yeah, yes. she
0: could get charged. She,
1: yes, she would now take on the charges for prostitution. Um, they would not consider her a minor anymore. And I would not have power and control. So before the age of 18, she belongs to me, you know? So if she goes missing or anything happens, I can enlist law enforcement to help me. They had a duty, but at the age of 18, she would just be written off as an adult. So I, I had that much insight prior Mm -hmm. to just from the work that, that I was doing. And I actually recall when, um, the night before her rescue, when the other agency met me with her contact list and it was a FBI contact and three sheriffs in another County, I was showing them my daughter's prom pictures, just trying to give them something to match. Cause I had already filed a missing persons report. And I remember those officers looking at that picture. Cause my daughter's a taller, more voluptuous young woman.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And they said, ma'am if your daughter wants to be a prostitute she'll be 18 in a few days there's nothing we can do and i just remember all the the adrenaline and the forward movement i'd made up until that point because there was probably about a 10 day span of time where i was just in this zone of i gotta go get her and i remember just collapsing in that parking lot on Mm -hmm. the asphalt in a puddle of tears. And I'd given up. Like at that moment, when he said that to me, I, I lost all my air. Like I had been just on fumes for so long. And those women, there were three women from that agency. Um, one of them, the tiniest one of the group, came and picked me up off the ground. And each woman got up underneath my armpit and lifted me back up. Mm-hmm. And the little spunky one <laughs> put her finger in that sheriff's face with some expletives and said sir tonight this woman's daughter is still 17 so for the next five days by law you must go find her yeah um and they advocated for me they you know, were your but angels
0: that, that night they, weren't were, they? <laughs> they were
1: and so um through those connections you know and I'd taken pictures of a license plate of a car that picked my daughter up you know the undercover agents were able to locate her the next day but had I stopped in that moment that would have been it and I I was very aware of that I knew that 18 was where um because you know they do traffickers do such a great job with manipulation coercion and brainwashing and the fear tactics my daughter came kicking screaming Mm. she was not cooperating she was programmed a certain way so at 18 I wouldn't it would have been her choice yeah, to stay. And she would have continued to believe the lies and feel the pressure and everything that goes into um, the trafficking of persons.
0: Wow. That is, it's just a crazy story. And it's crazy, Shonda, that this is your life. Like that happened. It really did. Yeah. Yeah, And so, so then you've, I read that you finished working on your um, nonprofit application mm-hmm. and you, you put your mind to it and you said, I'm not leaving this. You went to the public library, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. I did.
1: <laughs> um, because it had been sitting on my computer for probably two years, maybe. Um, but when I, I woke up one day in November of that year, I guess it was 2017, finally came out of the fog of my daughter's experience and was ready to face the world, had been on mm-hmm. medical leave from work um and that was when I knew the mission had to change and so I was still piecing things together but there just happened to be a day in February of 2018 that I was like enough you know I've got things all in folders everywhere and um couldn't afford internet at my house you know at the time and I thought well I know where I can go and stay till the doors close, and that was the public library so I went and I just put in headphones and pulled every draft and you know things that had been altered and article just pulled it all together because I had a goal with um, our board president um, who who I was asking to be the board president and I told her the goal was I would have a five o'clock time stamp from the UPS store across the street that day oh my gosh
0: yeah yeah I can I can just I see you at the computer, just like pounding <laughs> mm-hmm. away. And like yeah. you said, you can research anything. If you don't know how to do mm-hmm. something or write up something, you just look it up.
1: I did. I That's did. I, <laughs> yeah, I had that timeline because I just already knew, you know, that, that, uh, I'm, I'm even today, I'm still, you know, on my, uh, woman heal thyself, you know, journey. Yeah. And I knew, that that inner critic would start Mm -hmm. back in my ear you know and those files will be left on the computer another two years so it was just something that led from November to February where I knew that day that okay is you've got to give it the one shot and if the if Mm -hmm. if the IRS sends it back denied then I'll go back to the drawing board but I knew I had to take the
0: chance. It's like a holy fire was lit under your honey. (laughs) It it was. (laughs) So you did, you got it mailed off. And then you heard back and. Yeah,
1: I was on the phone with my mom one day pulling up to uh, where I lived and was running my mouth and checked the mail. And then I saw that it was from the Internal Revenue and it was a thin, you know, letter. And I was like, and so I'm. Um, I'll be fifty next month, but I still call my mom mommy. Yeah. And I was like, mommy. I said I have something in it from the Internal Revenue, and she's like, Well, Shonda, it's probably your response to the five hundred one C. And I was so nervous. Yeah. And I opened it, and I just remember my mouth was a gate, and I was like, oh, I just saw it. Uh, All it was is nothing fancy, just that one cheater that yeah. had the date that it started and told me i had been awarded and i was in total disbelief i was like oh my god i told her and i mean i remember just jumping up and down at the mailbox it was unbelievable i just couldn't believe it
0: yeah i got chill bumps Mm -hmm. because that kind of it just i guess it came full circle at that moment like divas who win freedom was a real thing
1: it was it was and it was the start you know and we Uh, Because I did it myself and me and Google, um, (laughs) uh, the internal revenue part went through fine. You know, our our tax status we were able to get and then an opportunity for a grant came maybe two months later. And then there were a few hiccups with the state of Georgia, some things. um, Not all the shoelaces weren't completely tied together and I just experienced just that overwhelming anxiety again like the clock was again Mm -hmm. ticking to be part of this funding stream um, of federal money that had come down but I was sort of stuck because I needed something changed it had to do with the EIN number and I tried and I tried it was like 60 days of trying to get things turned around and reaching out to this person and that person Um, and it, it, there was a lot, there were a few things because the, the structure was done by myself and I didn't have any oversight. Um, but again, you know, I just think God's grace and mercy, what had the people who were coming into that onboarding process of this grant, we were all new executive directors Mm -hmm. and they held it back. They moved it. It was supposed to start July 1st, which it, it took me almost 90 days to get things straight now, and they moved it to September 1st. So mm-hmm. the original grant was going to bring these organizations in on July 1st. And to this day, I don't know if there were other issues or other organizations or just the Divas. I'm not sure, but I do know I had some people advocating for us. They wanted this center with this dual mission to open its doors alongside of 15 other um, addiction centers across the state mm-hmm. of Georgia. So, uh, I, I learned a lot, you know, during you that even You got your son to help you too, didn't you? I did. I did. I was picking <laughs> him up from college. He'd just come back from, um, on summer break from university of Miami and I was getting that grant together and it, all it was is a big old long word document. He was like, mom, you got to put this in a Google doc or do Google slides. I, was like, I don't know what a Google doc <laughs> is. And uh I picked him up and he stayed on his little Mac airbook the from the time I got him that morning until we had to have it in by midnight that Wednesday. And I think James turned it in around 10 PM. So Man. he just streamlined it all and made it so much more pleasant to the eye. And uh yeah, he pulled it, he worked probably 10 hours straight on wow. that and we made the deadline.
0: It's just amazing how all these pieces came together and fast mm. forward a few years and women are coming in through your doors every day, right? They are about 125
1: pre pandemic, about 150 women a month um, yeah. come through here seeking services and, and really maybe about the same number we just engaged them um we had to find innovative ways to engage them in 2000 um and 20 and now things are beginning to open back up and we've got some new processes that are and new partnerships in the community uh but yeah the women women are are coming and women are uh able to see themselves and our story everyone that works for divas and the direct services, has lived experience um, mm-hmm. in the mission, either one, two, or all three parts of it, you know? Wow. And so it's a, it's a real thing. I still pinch myself some days uh-huh. driving up here to this building because uh, we started off in a little 300-square-foot room, you know? Yeah. And I just asked women to come, you know, just told them it was a safe space. There was nothing glamorous about it. But uh, what we had in common was a box of clinics and a warm shoulder to
0: lean on, you know, and That's that right. still remains at our core today. And now you offer um, like a boutique where they can, you know, yeah, clothes to wear for interviews or and you also offer uh, massage and chiropractic mm-hmm. care and let's see what else art yoga all kind of stuff. Yeah,
1: we just you know, we try to have our doors wide open and meet women in any way. The point of being a diva and taking that brand approach was, you know, we all know the bad kind of divas that nobody wants Mm -hmm. to fool around with, but then there's the good diva, you know, um, we knew women would be attracted to diva and that's such a different label. That's not hooker. That's not prostitute. That's not junkie, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and even though those might be labels from society, she could take refuge under the umbrella of being a diva and so we just try to create something that a diva would like to to do Mm -hmm. and it's up to the women when they want to tell their story you know we don't even ask them there's not even a qualifying question are you a person in long term recovery we don't ask that question when Mm -hmm. they come in the building they just come in and insert themselves where they feel most comfortable and over time they tell the story, you know, for some women, some women may come because we had an art night and, Mm -hmm. you know, she comes and she does art and then she might come a few more times. And then we may get a phone call six months later where this woman is in a crisis unit.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: because maybe it was a possible suicide attempt or maybe she overdosed on heroin. You know, we don't know. And then she calls and says, Hey, I came back when back last summer Mm -hmm. and my life is kind of spiral. Can you help me get into treatment? Yeah. So that's kind of us. It's like the Trojan horse approach um, because we kind of know from our experience if we wave the flag that just says, hey, we want all the ex-prostitutes and addicts to come here. Not everybody wants to engage in that way, but uh, like this weekend is one of our free shopping spree days. So there'll be anywhere from seven to 10 women doing this 90 minute experience with us. And it's, again, it's up to her to tell her story. You know, we just create that atmosphere where we can build community. And then over
0: time, it, it, it morphs into different things, you know? God, that's so amazing seeing just how far you've come. And mm. I, you have big plans too. I hear that you want to do like eventually have a house where women can live. And absolutely, yeah, because
1: you know that's kind of the untold part of the story. You know, people's heart break as it should over a six-year-old being traffic, over thirteen-year-old being traffic, over seventeen-year-old being traffic, and even if you hear stories of a thirty-year-old woman mm-hmm. who's been held up, but people tend to think that um, they don't really know the reality of how long this journey back to self and restoration is. And it's for women who have that sex trade trafficking piece of their story. It is a long road, you know, and Mm -hmm, going mm -hmm. to just a rehab may not be enough. She might go to a 90 day program or even a six month program to separate her brain from the drug dependence Mm -hmm. but then what about that whole other piece you Mm -hmm. know um so yeah we our goal is to have a uh, a two-year free rent-free holistic um supportive housing program so women will come here we'll start with four to six women in our first house women will get to come and live and not have that pressure Mm -hmm. um payment you know right. and she will have time to see about herself you know mm-hmm. we will build on these existing relationships we built the last 3 years where she can get trauma therapy uh, she might need to get a mammogram she needs her teeth replaced just with just a holistic model of mm-hmm. all the things and also the drug use you know uh we'll uh take her to outpatient um classes for that and then our hope is to just really build a cottage industry that she can work at, you know, we model our model off of a a international model that's home-based in Nashville, Tennessee called Thistle Farms. They've been around Mm -hmm. for 24 years and we're a sister organization to them. And that was their model, two-year rent-free, holistic supportive housing and women work there on property. So you get to kind of hold women close in this bit of a cocoon with other survivors as they find something valuable and meaningful to put their hands to, to work and, um, and heal, heal and work, work and heal, heal and work, you know,
0: such important work you're doing. And I, I just so appreciate you being open and willing to share your story with our listeners.
1: Absolutely.
0: So Absolutely. for people who want to donate or they want to come by your place or yeah. you tell us your website and how they can find you and read your book. Yeah.
1: So, um, as, so our website is up, but we had, we've been working on this six month, um, facelift. So it goes live tomorrow. Oh, yay. So if you check it today and, and go there tomorrow, but it's, um, www.divaswhowin.org is our website. Okay. Um, and there are all t- types of ways to engage with our community through volunteerism, um, through donations, through our semi annual events. There's a few ways that you can plug in. And the book, so I did write a book called The Genesis Experience. It's a really tiny book, it's about a 90 minute read. Um, and it is my experience during that summer while my daughter was being trafficked. It's chock full of Georgia data um, Mm -hmm. in terms of what sex trafficking looks like in our state. And it's a lot of the behind the scenes things that I learned along the way that will help um, a parent, a caregiver, a coach. If you Mm -hmm. have a young person in your life, you know, I think everyone needs to have the ability to uh, have the antenna go up when you learn about some of these key factors and the phases of trafficking. So that if there's a young person or older person that's mm-hmm. in danger, you might be able to recognize it um, a little more uh, readily.
0: Mm-hmm. This morning, while my 13 year old was eating breakfast, I was giving him an earful and I was like, listen, uh, this is how this happens. And he was like, <laughs> mom, I'm not even awake yet. And I, was like, I don't <laughs> care you going to listen. <laughs> so yeah. all right. Well, thanks again, Shonda. Absolutely. Wow, that was so amazing. Aren't y'all inspired? I am. So we're gonna try something new with our take-home points. Instead of uh, reading like a novel and me basically summarizing the entire podcast, haha, <laughs> we're gonna have just three take-home points. Or sometimes I might have to squeeze in five. But anyway, here's your top three points from this podcast. Number one, never stop dreaming. If you can dream it, you can make it happen. If you don't know how to do something, Google can help. Once you set your mind to a purpose bigger than you, the stars will align and you'll find the inner strength, you'll find the grit, you'll find the resilience necessary. Number two, look at who you were a few years ago. What did you need the most at the time? What did you need help with or what would have helped you get through whatever it was you were going through? This is what we can offer to other people. And lastly, Shonda found that women who had meaning in their lives had more success and did not go back to the same bad habits. They were able to climb beyond whatever their weaknesses were, whatever their um, setbacks were. When they had meaning in their lives, they had more success and they were more likely to be able to climb that mountain. thanks for joining me on today's podcast. If you like this podcast and think someone else could benefit, please share it. I'd also love for you to write a review on your favorite podcast platform like Spotify or Apple. And lastly, if you would like more of the same, come over to my website, hopethepa.com. Thank y'all for listening.